Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Ooh, is that pod on? Welcome to Broadway Bullet Volume 9 for October 11th, 2006. This is your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a lot of great stuff for you in our first post-New York Musical Theater Festival episode. We've got a great in-depth interview with Hunter Foster, big Tony-nominated Broadway star. We've also got Krista Vernoff, who's the head writer for Grey's Anatomy. She's got a play, Me, My Guitar, and Donna Henley opening off-Broadway. And we also check back in with the girls from Virgins for a report on the Australian theater scene. We're also going to hear some songs from the musicals You're in Town. Prodigal. Our child is not what we asked for. He didn't ask this himself. He's living out of pain and fear instead of living from hell. And Bonnie and Clyde in development. You can run with me, but to run with me, you gotta keep your head down. Cause the path you've been let down is a rocky road with a whole lot of trouble. Run with we also got a whole lot more, so make sure to tell all your friends about Broadway Bullet and let them know how they can subscribe at www.broadwaybullet.com or by searching Broadway Bullet in iTunes. Also, we appreciate all the great reviews we've gotten in iTunes. And if you've got an iTunes account, please take just a few seconds out of your time to give us a great five-star review. It makes us higher up in the rankings for featured slots in iTunes, letting a whole lot more people find the show and making it a whole lot easier for us convincing some of this great talent to come in and share all their thoughts with you. You can find out more information about all the people and shows we talk about in this episode by going to broadwaybullet.com and clicking the Volume 9 episode. We're going to tell you later on in the show how you can stump the staff to win a $20 gift certificate from the Drama Bookshop. But in the moment, we'll see if you're stumped by this week's winning question. The question is, who was originally supposed to be the lyricist for The Phantom of the Opera, and what was the only song he or she wrote for the project? Are you stumped? The Drama Bookshop wasn't. Tune in at the end of the episode to find out the winner and how you can enter our Stump the Staff contest. But let's get right into the program with our first interview. Many times, stage writers like to make the transition to film or television, but in our case, we have somebody who's working on making the reverse transition. Krista Vernoff is the head writer for Grey's Anatomy, and she's with us to talk about her first play, Me, My Guitar, and Don Henley. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? <laughs> Good. I understand you're a little jet-lagged at the moment. It's true. I'm jet-lagged. I'm on L.A. time. It's like 6 a.m. or something for me. <laughs> so, yeah. So, first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about Me, My Guitar, and Don Henley. Uh, it's a play I wrote about, I actually, I think I wrote it like four or five years ago now, and produced for the first time two years ago in Los Angeles. And... It's um, sort of a semi-autobiographical piece about my family, and it's semi-autobiographical because I imagine a situation in which, you know, six members of my family who've never actually all been in the same room come 
into the same room and uh, chaos and, and comedy ensues. <laughs> <laughs> where's the guitar and where's Don Henley? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, God, I always meant to get around to changing the title of the play because um, really it's a line of dialogue in the play where she says um, she has a dream that she plays a Don Henley song and it brings about world peace. And so she says, World War Three is over, thanks to me, my guitar, and Don Henley. But it's also sort of a metaphor for the dad figure in the play who is dying. That's the event that brings everybody together. Is um, But you never meet him. You only meet him through the monologues and dialogues that the six women in his life, three mothers and three daughters, have about him. So the Don Henley, you know, the guitar and Don Henley, he's sort of like a mythic figure to any young singer-songwriter who, which is Leah, the character at the center of the play. Her dad, because he's a singer-songwriter, because he's a drug addict, because he's been absent for most of her life, is sort of mythic in that way. And her guitar is her security blanket. It's her connection to her dad. It's the thing they both do. It's the thing they do together. So I, 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 you can draw a metaphor, but really it was a line of dialogue and I needed a title and I put it on the play and I always meant to change it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, then it got nominated for an Ovation Award in Los Angeles. So for the New York production, I was planning to change the title. I had a whole other title. It was going to be called A Song My Father Wrote. And the publicist wouldn't let me change the title because of the nomination. So, But you know what? People tell me they like the title, so it's okay. What made you decide to step into playwriting after doing television? I grew up in the theater. My uh, my mom was an actress in the theater. My my sister and I both grew up doing theater as as you know young actors. And, you know, community theater, not like big Broadway stuff. We were, but we grew up, really grew up backstage with my mom doing plays. And I trained, my uh, degree is a Bachelor of Fine Arts in acting from Boston University. And so all of my schooling, all of my schooling is in theater because it was a conservatory program. So I'm wildly undereducated in every other field. <laughs> but I, I grew up in theater. And for that reason, I never wrote a play because it was you don't try to do that. You know what I mean? Like television, we looked down upon and so fine. <laughs> try to write TV, that's fine. You can get away with that without seeming like you, you think you're all that. But theater, you know, it's funny because I, I have a friend, Tony Phelan, who is one of the other writers on uh, Grey's Anatomy, and he was a director and a writer in theater in New York for 10 years, and he laughed because his thing was, oh, you piddly little East Village theater director, what do you think you're doing trying to write television? And I have the opposite thing. Like, this play intimidates me in a way. I am way more stressed out about this play opening this weekend than I ever, than I was last week when 20... Four million people watched an hour of television that I wrote. Like, I don't know why it works that way, but it does. So I, I never wrote a play f because it was too scary to me. But what happened is that I was working in TV and I was working on a show called Charmed for three years. And that was fine and it was fun, but I wanted to write... You know, what happens in television is that you can get very easily stereotyped into a genre. And that was a genre show. It was science fiction. It was girls. It was young. And I wanted to write, you know, stuff like Grey's Anatomy. And, um, oh, my God, can you hear me getting out of breath? <laughs> I get out of breath sitting still because of the pregnancy. It's the strangest thing. I'm four and a half months pregnant. And it's like the blood starts circulating, and it's like I'm exercising and I'm not. <laughs> Um, so if it sounds like I'm running in place in here, that's why. I'm sorry, what was I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you ask me? Oh, I was uncharmed. Yeah. And the only way to, it, to, in Hollywood, break out of a stereotype if they've decided that you're going to be in one 
is to write your way out of it. So I needed a writing sample that said, no, here, I, I write other things. So I, you know, in my off time during Charmed, which there isn't a great deal of, I, so I, it took me about eight months of writing this play. I'd had this play in my head for, seriously, for almost a decade. I had wanted to write this, but I didn't have the framing device. I never could come up with the framing device to tell this, to bring this group of women together. I knew I wanted to, because what the play is about, it's about the nature of truth. You've got six women. It's a play with six women, three mothers and three daughters, three mothers in their 50s, daughters in their 30s. And every one of them has an extremely different version of what the truth of this family history is. And Leah, the central character, is trying desperately to figure out which one's true, which one's the real truth, to find out the true story so that she can, what she says in the play is, so she can know who, finally know whose side she's on. Because she has spent her life sort of going back and being the peacemaker in the family. She's the only one who has a relationship with all the women and with dad. And she's, she's trying to figure out who her dad really is and what the, tru- what the truth is. I wanted to write it because, you know, that's, it's a little autobiographical and that was my role in my family. And I would listen to these stories, these disparate stories from all of these people. And it was just insane to me how two people or three people or four people could talk about one event and perceive it so completely differently, which is what they do. So she's trying to find out what's true. And I'd wanted to write it for a long time. And then my dad died. And suddenly I felt like I understood. I had a framing device around which I I could imagine the coming together of this whole family. So um, I wrote the play while I was on Charmed. I and I wrote it as a writing sample. It's it's got a lot of autobiograph uh, auto. Wow. And then when you get pregnant, you can't make words. <laughs> autobiography in it. Almost too much because I, I never really, in, because I'm so intimidated by theater, I thought, oh, I'll just write it. It'll be a writing sample. People will read it, but I, I never planned to produce it. So I didn't even really properly change names. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, I didn't, I really didn't disguise. I didn't protect the innocent terribly well in this play. Um, I didn't change my dad's name. So <laughs> he's okay. He doesn't mind. So the, I ended up... You know, a friend of mine was like, I love this play. You have to let me produce it in L.A. a couple of years ago. You know, of course, she's an actor. Like, I want to I play this role kind of thing. And now the way it happened in New York is that my sister, who is a character in the play, who is also an actress in New York, gave the play to a friend of hers, Stephanie, who has Crooked Neck Theater Company. And it was the same thing. Can we please produce this play? We want to play these parts. <laughs> so um, now my sister is playing a character pretty much based on my sister. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. And I'm really proud of the play. And uh, like I said, terrified that audiences will see it, even though uh, 20, you know, millions of people see my writing on TV every week. Well, you know, I, I still think that, you know, despite the fact that the money is obviously in Hollywood and in television, I think... The potential for long-term, you know, artistic recognition. I think plays are still definitely the writer's medium in live theater. Mm-hmm. You know, the focus is on the writer, whereas with film, it's mostly usually on the director. And with television, who I don't know who it's really ever well, on the show itself. It's on the actors. And, I mean, TV is a writer's medium also, but it's really the it's like the show creator 
that you've, you know, Shonda Rhimes created Grey's Anatomy. It's her show. She gets a lot of, she does rightfully get a lot of credit for it. But I think that if film is the director's medium and theater is the writer's medium, then television is the actor's medium. Because those people come into your living room every single week. They, They become very famous in a way that movie stars even don't. Because they're in your living room every week, they they seem approachable (laughs) in a way that movie stars don't. But I I have to say the reason I write TV rather than film is because the writer has a lot of power in television. So was it it exciting getting nominated for an Emmy? Oh, yes. That was very (laughs) exciting. It was was (laughs) mind-blowing, really. And also I understand that uh, Grey's Anatomy just took the crown in the very much watched Thursday night fight against CSI. We did. We did the first week. I think they actually took the crown back the second week, like by a very narrow margin. But was there a lot of champagne popping over Uh, there? There was a lot of champagne popping, and we're (laughs) waiting to see what's going to happen this week. There was was champagne. that We got no work done for about three days, so Mm -hmm. it was a big deal. Do you want to tell us uh, how people can go see the show that you're terrified people are going to see? I'm terrified you're going to see it. But it's, even though I just want to say, like, yes, it's framed around the death of my father, but just like we handle issues of life and death with a lot of comedy on Grey's Anatomy, so does this play. And it's only, it has a 70-minute running time and no intermission, so it's a great way to, like, do dinner in the theater. And I hope you come see it, even though I'll be throwing up in the back of the theater. It's also directed by Peter Page, who I should, that's worth a mention. He's a big star in certain communities. He he starred as Emmett on Queer's Folk on Showtime for five years. He's a brilliant actor and a brilliant director and happens to be one of my lifelong best friends. So I was thrilled that he came out here because I felt like, okay, my, my baby is is being uh, protected. So I'm going to have to stop talking about the play as my baby soon. <laughs> I'm going to have an actual yeah. baby. Uh, okay, the play previews October 5th and 6th, and then it opens uh, on October 7th, and it runs through October 27th. It is playing at the 14th Street Y Theater, which is at 344 East 14th Street on the second floor. And if you want tickets, you can call 212-352-3101, or you can go to www theatermania.com and uh, it's a Crooked Neck Productions production. All right. Well, thank you so much in the middle of everything to come down and talk with Broadway Bullet listeners about your show and and your writing career. I'm so happy to. I'm, I'm so honored to have the possibility of Broadway Bullet listeners to come see my play. It's really a big deal to me to have a play in New York. So. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Welcome. Remember, you can find out more about these shows by visiting broadwaybullet.com. Up next... We have our first Tony-nominated interview with Hunter Foster. It's a three-part interview, and we also play songs from shows he was in, You're in Town, and Little Shop of Horrors, and we have a show that he's writing, a track from that in development, Bonnie and Clyde. So make sure you listen to all three parts here, coming up right now. Hunter Foster's career has taken off like crazy in the past few years, breaking through with his role as Bobby Strong in You're in Town, and then getting nominated for a Tony Award for Little Shop of Horrors, and he is currently playing Leo Bloom in The Producers. Hunter Foster is also participating in the New York Musical Theatre Festival, and he has stopped down by the Broadway Bullet Studios to talk with us about his career, his education, and what's on the horizon for him. So how are you doing, Hunter? I'm doing good. I'm doing all right. <laughs> Except for my toe. <laughs> you stubbed your toe on your bike on your way down here? Yeah, I, I, my bike slid on some, some oil patch or something on the street, so I hit my toe. So a Broadway star doesn't get a limo everywhere? No, apparently not, no. <laughs> That's going to steer a lot of people away from the career immediately. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I mentioned to you as you came in the door that I'm, I'm really glad interviewing you as our like first 
celebrity sort of interview because we like supporting upcoming theater as well as yeah. new things and we really want to give a lot of support to the independent movement and you kind of strike me as the alternative indie boy of Broadway. That sounds good. I like that. I like the sound of that. <laughs> so, I'm pleased to have you in here. First off, we'll start by talking about some of the things that you've done and your real breakthrough role was You're in Town. Yeah. And, uh, but what led up to that? You know, You're in Town was kind of the first thing they kind of broke through with, but I had been in the original company of, of the revival of Greece back in 1994, which had uh, Rosie O'Donnell and Megan Mullally and Billy Porter, Sam Harris, uh, had a pretty, pretty spectacular cast. I was in that for three years with Brooke Shields and John Cicada and uh, Debbie Boone and Al Jarreau, Jody Watley, Joe Piscopo, um, Lucy Lawless, <laughs> I mean, like any star you can name who came in, uh, Mickey Dolenz, Davy Jones. That was the epitome of drag out the names for oh the my Westerners. Oh, yes. So I did, did that show for three years with all those stars. And then I did other shows. I did Les Mis, I did Footloose, but it was really uh, You're in Town, which kind of was my big break, I guess. Now, did anyone ever expect that to get as far as it did? No, not even myself. I think that uh, when I read it and first heard about it, I, was, I liked it a lot. But I was like, oh, this will never fly in New York. I mean, it'll, it'll we'll probably run for the 10 weeks off Broadway, and that'll be it. I never in a million years thought it was going to move uh, to Broadway. And when we got the critical response we got off Broadway, and then they were talking about moving it to Broadway, I was, I just had never dreamed that that would happen. And, um, of course, it did. You know, now that we're celebrating the fifth year anniversary of September 11th, it's also the fifth year anniversary of our opening for Year in Town because we were scheduled to open on September 13th. September 11th happened, and we had to postpone our opening for another week. We, didn't, of course, didn't come back to work until that Thursday night on September 13th, and uh, they had to cancel the opening and move it to the 20th. Now, a lot of times people complain that critics are just trying to run shows out of town, but the critics really are a big part of why you're in town did become so big, isn't it? Yeah, Bruce Weber was a, uh, a big champion of the show. He was the, the second-string critic at the New York Times, and he wrote uh, a great review of us off-Broadway and then re-reviewed us again. A lot of times they just will rerun their review off-Broadway, on-Broadway, but he actually re-reviewed us, and if you read it, it's actually the first time he wrote something 9-11. So <laughs> he, he, it's, it's the longest review I've ever read in the New York Times and one of the most glowing reviews I've ever read in the New York Times, but... And he just compared September 11th and year in town and its significance in, uh, in, the, in our world today. And it was quite something to read. And I haven't read in a while. I actually want to go back and read it now. It's been five years. So what was like the feeling backstage when all that started happening and it looked like it was going to be more than just a minor little success? You always tread lightly because a show can get critical response or not get good critical response but you never know how long it's going to run how the audience is going to take to it we certainly knew off broadway that we were a big hit because the, sh the runs were sold out and people were waiting outside it was great to come to the theater and see people waiting in line to like try to get in to see the show and because off broadway we were in that we were in a small house and so the, the tick, number of tickets were limited, and it was a limited run, so everyone was trying to get in to see it. And it was great to be a part of something that we, we were one of those you-can't-miss shows. I mean, there's some shows on, in New York that are like, oh, yeah, that, yeah, I hear that's good, maybe I want to see it. And they say, and there are shows that you can't miss this. And when you feel like you can't miss something, then people go in droves to, to get tickets and to wait and to see something, whether it's Matthew and Nathan and the producers, you know, everyone said you can't miss them in the show or, I don't know, Meryl Streep in the park or, or whatever. It, it's, and that's what we were at off-Broadway. And so it was a great, 
feeling to know that we were the it show for a time. Now, what do you think the changing climate is in Broadway that allowed the change? Because, for instance, another show that I can think of about a decade before that had a very similar thing, a limited run, people, it was the it show, you can't miss it, nobody got in, it was Assassins. Yeah. By Stephen Sondheim, very alternative, edgy, kind of like you're in town, but yet that you know, failed to find any support to move, where it probably would have been much more successful on Broadway when it originally came out mm -hmm. than it even was when they finally revived it. Right. So what do you think the climate change in the thing is that well, allows... Well, I, I think it's a different time period. I, I wasn't around when Assassins came out. I wasn't in New York. But I think that back then, I know that um, for whatever reason, economically, shows... Back then, you didn't have a lot of shows on Broadway anyway. I mean, when I first moved here, there were dark theaters. And now producers are fighting over theaters because there's not enough theaters. So I think the economics of theater has have changed, in which I think that maybe if Assassins had come out now, it probably would have moved, just because I think that the economics seem to be in more in favor of shows being on Broadway as opposed to shows being off-Broadway. I know that for us, here in town, was the economically just wasn't feasible to do it off-Broadway. It was more economically feasible to do it on Broadway. I don't know if you're in town would have come out 15 years ago. I don't know if you're in town would have moved. It might have had a healthy off-Broadway run and then been done, because I think shows nowadays, if you're a kind of a hit off Broadway, it's economically feasible to move it to Broadway. And I don't know enough about the business with, in producing to know why that is now, as opposed to back then. But it just seems like, like I said, everyone's producing shows and shows are being done and, you know, all the theaters are being used up. And back then, you know, those theaters were empty and, they, and shows were just not being produced like they are now. I mean, if you look at the Broadway musicals, there's like eight or nine Broadway musicals being done every single year and revivals. And 15, 20 years ago, you're lucky if you had three. I mean, what, there, there's a one-year Sunset Boulevard was like the only show that opened that year and won the Tony by default because it was mm -hmm. it. So now you progress to another show that in its original incarnation never made it to Broadway, I yeah. think, to... Uh, a lot of people surprised, so it's kind of weird calling Little Shop of Horrors a revival. Right. Because it was actually its Broadway premiere. Right. Of course, you played the lead in that. Yeah. How was that? It was great to be a part of. That show has kind of been in the in the uh, Broadway lore for such a long time. You know, it had a great off-Broadway run. It never transferred to Broadway. It, it's had such a great life regionally and in high schools and it's a show that a lot of people who are not even Broadway buffs know because of the movie and and it was great to be that character because I think that that's a character that people really identify with and they know and and to actually be part of the show finally making it to Broadway was pretty it was pretty exciting. What were the challenges taking on a character that in so many ways people have a expectation of well, what that character is? I think it's because people like I said have seen it at their high school. You know, I had so many people, when I came out the stage door, they're like, oh, we just did that at our high school, or we just did it last year in our, in our community theater, or I just saw it at the regional theater. And kids saying, I just played Seymour. Everyone has an idea of what that character should be already before they come to the theater, because they've seen it, seen the movie. They're re and it's, and it's, a hard, it's hard to do your own spin on it, because people are already expecting it to be a certain way. And it's more, I think, for Audrey than it was for Seymour because Audrey is so identifiable with Ellen Green, who did it in the movie. You know, her performance is, is, you know, legendary, and it's actually preserved on film. And it's hard when you have that expectation in your head, because yet you want, you, you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't. If you come in and you do exactly what was done before, people are like, oh, they're just, they're just rehashing what I saw Rick Moranis do in the movie. But if you try to do something different, they're like, why aren't they like 
you know, Rick Moranis in the movie. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 a it was a or why aren't why isn't he like what what I saw at my regional theater? <laughs> it's kind of a it's a hard. That, that's really hard when you're playing those ca- kind of characters that are very identifiable. What was it like acting opposite Carrie Butler? Because for her, that was her... F- she was like the second lead in Hairspray. Right, right. And no, she's this great. Was her, this was her first real lead, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, she was in Bat Boy. Yeah. And she's great. I mean, she's... Um, you know, we've kind of made a habit of kind of playing opposite each other. I don't know why, because we're doing uh, This Party Come Here. Yeah. And they were doing Mark Holman and Greg Kotis, who wrote You're in Town, their next show called Man in the White Suit. We're doing a big reading in uh, October, and we're playing opposite each other in that. So it seems kind of like we're always opposite each other. But she's, you know, she's great. We had a great time doing doing the show together, and she has one of those performers who kind of wears her heart on her sleeve, you know. And but she's also very funny and quirky, and loved her in Hairspray. I thought she was very. Yeah, I, very, I actually kind of thought she stole the show, yeah, especially. I did too. With the duet number in that. Oh, I thought like, yeah, she was great, yeah. Now, another kind of thing, you've taken over the role of Leo Bloom yeah. in The Producers, uh-huh. which is another role that people have a very... Yeah, identif- yeah they, they identify with Matthew Broderick. So how does that feel, taking on that kind of role? How much do you get to change? When you're in a monolith show like that that has become such a brand... How much creative freedom do you get to throw in your own things, and how well, much do you have to... I mean, they've been pretty good about us kind of coming up with our own stuff. They, I mean, they encourage it. And I've done it long enough now where I think that I've hopefully have come up with my own spin on the performance. I think they, they kind of encourage that. I mean, they, there's no way you can create, do what Matthew and Nathan had. It was, it was pretty special, what they, whatever their relationship on stage. And there's no way to try to emulate it or try to recreate it it's it's the only way to, is to start over as if you're doing it for the first time as if you're creating the role and it's never been done before it's really the only way to handle that situation of course being put in a show as opposed to creating a character from scratch is harder because you don't have a rehearsal process which you're you're basically kind of being put in a show mm-hmm. so there's certain things that you have to do because that's just the way things are are done you know when you're doing other shows you can kind of say well I, I'd like to do this and like okay you know but that's a challenge in its own right. But I think, like I said, I've done it long enough now where hopefully I've kind of found my own, and they trust me enough that if I wanted to change something, they would let me do it. All right, before we kind of continue on, we're going to play uh, one of the songs from your breakthrough performance in You're in Town. Would you like to set up the song a little bit? Um, well, this song is um, in the second act, and it's Bobby Strong is there's a revolution going on, and he's the leader of the revolutionaries. And he basically sings a gospel number about it's called Run, Feed, and Run. <laughs> and, <laughs> it looked like you just had such a blast. Yeah, this, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. And, and we got to do it on the Tonys and stuff, so that was really exciting. And he's just trying to get the... Um, they're wanting to to, um, to kill his girlfriend. And Bobby's, like, saying, you know, there's more important things than just killing this girl. You know, that I know you just want to lash out and kill her, but there's more important things. The revolution is more important, and there are bigger things. But the, the, look at the bigger picture, basically. Run, freedom, run. Freedom run away, my friends. You have to run, 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 run. Freedom run away. That freedom sun will shine someday. Till then, you better run, 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 run. Freedom run away. I'm frightened. Oh, yes, well, you should be. Freedom is scary. It's a blast of cool wind that burns your face to wake you up. Literally? Yes. There's a trickle of sweat, sweat. dripping in your ear. Still, you gotta run, 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 freedom, run away. Now, don't you fret and never fear. 
run away. There's a great big clad bell on your tail. And his blood is handsled on the trail. Yeah, I went to um, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Majored in musical theater there. It was great. I mean, it was. It's. I recommend education for any, anyone. I mean, it's not for everyone. You should figure out what you want. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wrestled whether I should just go to New York and and just start acting. And but you know, I, I, I said I went to school and you know I didn't have a, a huge knowledge of Broadway or theater or musical theater. I was kind of just wanted to be an actor and wasn't sure exactly how to go about it and. And I acted in some shows and regionally in, in uh, high school, but it was great to go there and get a, kind of a vocabulary of musical theater and, and theater and, and to understand playwrights and composers and book writers and lyricists and directors. It was it was and so I really felt like I learned a lot about theater history and you know I, so I came to to New York really kind of having a vocabulary and, and an understanding of Broadway and and so that, I think it really helped me so if I auditioned for certain shows I kind of like oh I know that show because I studied that show in college you know you weren't really into musicals when you were younger so what steered you towards studying musical theater I wanted to be an actor and I just auditioned for shows. Um, I think auditioned for at the rec department. Was having auditions for Yorgo and Charlie Brown. I was like I was like 13, and I was taking acting classes at at the rec department. And I auditioned for it and I had to sing. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll sing. So I sang like you know Do Re Mi or something like that or I Deck the Halls. I can't remember. And uh, they're like, oh, you have a nice voice. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know I had a nice voice. And um, I just started doing shows. I, I auditioned for that. I auditioned for this uh, Bobby Birdie a couple years later at my high school, and got that. And you know, I, I didn't quite know what I was doing. I was just kind of. It was a lot of fun, and and I wanted to be an actor because I kept. I was a big movie buff, and saw Raiders of the Lost Ark like ten times, and wanted to be Harrison Ford, and 
And so that's kind of how I got into it. You know, uh, musicals, I kind of got into musicals only because I could sing. And everything I auditioned for, I, I was getting because I had a good voice. And so that's kind of how I got into musicals. I wasn't really a musical fan. And then I became a musical fan as I learned more and more about musicals. I was like, oh, well, I like these, like some of this stuff. You know, it's kind of fun, and I like some of this music. So that's kind of how I got into it. After college, what has been most useful to you, networking or auditions? Uh, that's a tough question because I think, in a way, if you're good at both, you could probably go pretty far in this business. I certainly know, I've known, gotten to know a lot of people in the past uh you know, 12, 13 years since I've been in New York. And those people call on you to do certain things. Um, so people I've gone to college with, people I've done shows with, people I've hung out with. And it's interesting to see how people that were, you know, your friends that were just in shows with you all of a sudden are now becoming directors and casting directors and, and producers. And, and suddenly, you know, you, you're, it's, it's nice to know these people because they can say, hey, I'd like you to do this show, or I'd like you to do this part, or in this reading, or something like that. So that's, it's good to keep up with those people. I don't go out of my way to solicit, you know, I need to go meet Martin Short because I want to be in his show, or there's, you know, Hal Prince, I need to go talk to him so I'll be, be put in a show somewhere. I mean, I don't, I don't solicit myself that way, nor do, would I ever want to do it that way. I know some people who do, <laughs> and they go very far in this business. But, uh, you know, and, and auditioning, of course, is very important, but it's really nice to get on the ground level with some of these shows, like when someone asks you to be a part of something and then you start working on it and then they say, when the show goes to Broadway, we want you to be a part of it. That's always much nicer than having to audition for a show. Do you feel you're good with auditions? Um, I think I'm okay. You know, auditioning is a, such, is a completely different technique from actually performing. I know a lot of actors are fantastic actors and just audition for crap. Yeah, I mean, I, it's true. It's what, true. What's your advice to like those kind of people? The people in the room want you to have this job. They do. They really do. They're begging the next person who comes in the room to be the one. And I've sat on the other side of the table, and I kept saying, "Please let." Per it gets so frustrating when you can't find what you're looking for. It's just a weird thing to audition, to walk into a room and to sing a song for people, and they're deciding whether you're going to put you in a show or you're you're going to a movie audition, and you're and people are just—it's—it's it's a strange, <laughs> strange thing. But you know, I—I I, like I said I think I'm okay at it. I don't think I'm necessarily great at it, but I don't put as much pressure on myself anymore. I think I—I I used to put a lot of pressure on myself. To, I've got to nail this audition. Well, you don't have to nail this audition if you're what they're looking for and you're right, and they have enough imagination and they think you're right for this part. They'll—you'll get this part. It's what it's all about—is being right for parts, not. It's not a talent comp. It's not like, oh, well, he was the most talented, so we're going to give it to him, and that's not the way it works. I've never sensed you have this burning ambition to move to television or film. Is that the case, or are you... Um, well, no, I mean, I, I certainly would I would accept the challenge, you know, to, uh, to do television and film. I know it's a completely different thing than what I do now, and I really enjoy... The two things that I enjoy is I, I, I enjoy the family atmosphere of being a part of a show of knowing that when you come to work, that you come to work with a group of people, whether the stagehands or the wardrobe, uh, hair and makeup, uh, whatever. I love that community. I love the Broadway community. I love that you're a part of something. And that, a lot of people from television and film come back and say how tight-knit being on a Broadway show is, as opposed to television and film where you're more isolated. I love that aspect of it. And I also love the kind of the artistic, and I don't want to sound 
I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but I, I like the artistic integrity that shows take, for the most part, take in New York, where I like creating something that you really have input in, and that you could do a sitcom and make a lot of money, but if it's not ultimately at the end, if, if you're just doing stuff that you're not really happy doing, and it's, uh, I don't know what the point, I mean, if it could make a lot of money, sure, <laughs> but I mean, I would, I would rather be a part of something that is meaningful to me, or write something, or create something that is, that's saying something and that's, I'm not saying it has to be something profound, but <laughs> I would rather be artistically fulfilled than than just do some kind of crappy sitcom. But, I mean, if, I wouldn't mind doing it to make the money, of course, because it's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about some of your writing projects here after we play uh, a song here from Little Shop of Horrors. Which one would you like us to play? Grow For Me, I guess. Grow For Me. Aw, oh, Tui. I don't know what else to do for you. Mr. Mushnick and Audrey, they just met you, but I've been going through this with you for weeks. Grow and wilt, spurt and flop. Are you sickly little plant, or are you just plain stubborn? What is it you want? What is it you need? I've given you sunshine. I've given you dirt. You've given me nothing but heartache and hurt. I'm begging you sweetly, I'm down on my knees, oh please grow for me. I've given you plant food and water to sip, I've given you potash, you've given me zip, oh God how I missed you, oh pod how you tease, now please. For me, I've given you southern exposure to get you to thrive. I've pinched your back hard like I'm supposed to. You're barely alive. I've tried you at levels of moisture from desert to mud. Then I've given you grow lights and mineral supplements. What do you want from me? Blood? Ouch! Damn roses, damn thorns. Clumsy me. Look what I did, Tui. Hey, you're opening up. What made you do that? I think I know what made you do that. Well, I guess a few drops couldn't hurt. As long as you don't make a habit out of it or anything. I've given you sunlight, I've given you rain, looks like you're not happy, unless I open a vein, I'll give you a few drops, if that'll appease, now please, oh, 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 Grow for me. We're going to be right back for part three of our interview with Hunter Foster. But first, we have a word with one of our promotional partners. We saw a funny, funny musical called Alter Boys. Everyone's raving about Alter Boys, the new musical comedy and winner of the Outer Critics Award for Best Musical. 
just knocked us out of our seats. I couldn't believe the dancing. I find myself just smiling and I look around and everybody had this big smile plastered on their face. It's really funny. <laughs> funny. 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 Over the top. It's a musical that is absolutely hysterical. Really incredible. Unbelievable. The boys were awesome. I believe in the altar boys. They didn't even have to sing. They could have just stood up there. It's fantastic. 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 The Altar Boys give dynamite performances with infectious energy, raves the New York Times. Their songs are convincing enough to be on MTV. The critics agree, it's hysterical. Altar Boys, you'll laugh your mess off. All my expectations were fulfilled. <laughs> okay, so we've kind of talked about all the shows you've done, and we've talked about you know your education and... And what you're going, and I, I think this is probably which, what you're very eager to talk about. It's some of the, the future projects that you're developing as a writer, as an actor. What all is going on in Hunter Foster's world? Um, well, you know, I, I, I'm doing this uh, party come here, which is David Kirschbaum, Daniel Goldfarb, which I'm very excited about. And we're doing like almost a full production here, I guess, or well, it's the whole show, basically, while I'm doing the producers, which is going to be really exciting. But like I said, to create something new and actually get to do something uh, different from the producers and, and create something original. Me and Carrie Butler, who I play opposite in, in Party Come Here, we're also doing a show called Man in the White Suit, which is based on the film with Alec Guinness that was written by Mark Holman and Greg Kotis, who wrote Town, And we're doing a reading of that in October. And we're hoping, I've done a couple of readings in, of that, and we're hoping to uh, get that produced at some time. Possibly maybe doing a reading of Daniel Goldfarb's play that I did a, a reading of it with Tony Schlub about a year ago in, on Martha's Vineyard. Um, we did a little one-night reading on Martha's Vineyard. There was all these people in the audience like Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen and, <laughs> and some other notables can't think of right offhand. But, uh, and then I'm writing two projects, um, a show called Bonnie and Clyde with Rick Crome, who wrote a musical off-Broadway, which anyone who's nominated for Drama Desk for his lyrics for musical. And we've written a, a Bonnie and Clyde that uh, hopefully we're going to be doing a reading in November. And David Kirschbaum wrote Party Come Here is writing, uh, who I wrote Summer 42 with, it was done off-Broadway, we are writing a, um, a show called, uh, based on the movie Fearless, which was the Rosie Perez, Jeff Bridges film in 1990, from 1994, and I may be performing a song from that show at Joe's Pub on November 20th, which is uh, a night of David Kirschenbaum songs, and maybe performing a song from that. Now, do you leave your actor's hat on while you write? Uh, you of course, yes, I do. Because I always, you know, I, it's it's funny when I, uh, and I'm also writing a play too, so, and I and I was when I, anytime I, I write stuff, I have to if it doesn't feel comfortable as to me as an actor, then I know the line isn't right. So I'll sit there and I'll I'll act out the line as if I'm getting the script for the first time. Because I always know when I get scripts and I read it, I know the line isn't. It's it's not just it's not right. If it if, if well, not that I'm saying I'm some great knower of <laughs> lines, but but if it's awkward to me saying. Then I always have a problem. I always, I always say, say to the playwright or something. This is an awkward way to say this. Can we maybe change or something? And so I always kind of do that to myself. I'm like, is this awkward? How, how am I saying this? Does this make sense to me as an actor? And if it doesn't make sense to me as an actor, then it's not going to make sense in the play because some other actor is going to be like, what? You know, what? That makes sense to me. So I definitely keep my actor hat on. Now, when you're working on the musicals, do you just do the book, or do you also participate sometimes with the music and lyrics? Well, I don't do the, I don't do the music. I do I do suggestions of of musical styles, and with with Rick, I say, well, we need, I think we need a gospel number here. I think we need a 
uh, a ballad here. I think we need an up tempo. I think uh, I think this needs to be a country song or whatever. I think any book writer has to. I don't. I'm not, I don't necessarily feel like I'm a good lyricist, but there has there has to be a seamlessness between the book and the lyrics. So, especially with Rick, Rick Crow, my collaborator in Bonnie and Clyde, is I will write dummy lyrics bad lyrics and I kind of write them bad on purpose because I don't want you know I, th I always feel like that's not my job to write the lyrics it's his job to write the lyrics so I kind of write just bad lyrics that don't really go with what but but give the essence of what I think the character should be saying so he understands where I'm coming from and then he can take that bad lyric and then write a good lyric out of it then it's mm -hmm. kind of like our jobs are kind of meld into one um, I know other people are different people like to write good lyrics book writers but um, like Greg Kodas I think writes some lyrics with Mark Holman and when they wrote You're in Town and Man in the White Suit but me I, I purposely just write kind of will write bad lyrics here and there just to give him what I'm looking for even in theater there's always a definite balance between like art and the business right. side of thing uh, how is the process of backers auditions for you? Do you enjoy the the business aspect of actually <laughs> turning, getting the place funded and turned into a reality on, on uh, stage? Yeah, I, I do. I think it's that's always that's always exciting for me when when you're doing a reading and and as an actor, it's 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 kind of really nerve wracking as a writer when you're having important people come because you're like you're paranoid if they're going to like it, if they're laughing, you know. But as an actor, it's kind of fun to look out. When you're doing a backers audition and you see all the great, all the big time producers out in the in the audience and all, all the kind of we, the power people and you're, you, you know, you have an audience to kind of show your stuff, which I I always kind of think that's kind of exciting and fun, but as a writer it's more challenging, it's more nerve wracking because they're deciding whether they're going to take your project or not. So do you act in things that you write for backers auditions? Um, you know, it's I prefer not to uh, act in things that I, but I mean the jury's still out if I'm going to do Bonnie and Clyde or not um, there's been some talk of me actually acting and playing Clyde I don't know we'll see what happens as a final note before we introduce the last song I guess what was it like when you first heard that you got nominated for a Tony um, well I was in the I was in the can actually it's a very kind of funny story I was <laughs> like I got up and you know it was, it was hard because when, when I was in Urinetown I didn't get nominated and it was very it's it's the, the hardest thing in the world is. Like, I was stunned when you were nominated. For but that. but but the hardest thing in the world is when everyone's telling you, you are. <laughs> and then I read in the New York Times on Friday it said somebody wrote Hunter Foster will be the fifth nominee in the category, and I was like, so everyone's telling you you are, and you're reading it in the paper, and you're like, I'm not going to get my hopes up, I'm not going to hopes up. And then you know my wife before we went to bed, she's like, she said you're going to get nominated. I'm like, I'm not going to. I said I don't I don't want to think about it. And then it didn't happen, and and it was. I didn't want to be upset about it because I'm like, you know what? It's not that important. That's not what's important. But it, you can't help but like getting getting your hopes up and then then getting, you know, if if I hadn't gotten my hopes up, I wouldn't have felt. If I'd been like, oh, I'm probably not getting nominated, and didn't get nominated, then I wouldn't I wouldn't have been like, I'd been like, fine, I didn't get nominated. It's no big deal. But when everyone's telling you, you are, and then you're reading that you are that, and then you're, it doesn't happen, and then and you're like going, oh, that might have been my only chance ever. You know, that's what you're thinking in your head. So then when it happened again, for Little Shop, I was like, I am not going to get my hopes up at all. I'm not even going to think about it. And, of course, everyone's saying the same, again, you are. And I'm like, on. And so I got out of bed. My wife went to watch the thing. And so the, it's going to be on. I said, well, I have, to, I have to run the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom. Of course, we're the first category, and I'm the first name. <laughs> so Jane Krakowski says my name, and I'm in the can, literally, while that <laughs> happens. So.
that was, but it was pretty exciting, and I, and it was very nice. It's it's always nice to be to have your name up there, and always you're always a Tony nominee. That it can that can never be taken away from you. So well, we're gonna it's a special treat with a, a demo from the musical you're writing, Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. Do you want to set up the song a little bit for people? Well, I you know this is this song's called Run with Me, and it's uh, Clyde has just robbed this diner which Bonnie is working at, and has stolen money that Bonnie was actually uh, Bonnie was actually stealing money from the diner because she was trying to move to California and to get out of Texas and Clyde has come in and stolen money from the diner and actually steals this huge sum of money that Bonnie was actually stealing for herself <laughs> so uh, she makes a deal with him basically uh, the police have come in and she makes a deal with him that if uh, that she will she has a gun. She gets a hold of a gun, and she basically says, makes a deal with him, saying that if you don't share, give me back my money, then I'm gonna let you turn you over to the police. And he says, fine. And they go out to the car, and they're in the car, and he's like saying, fine, you can run with me. And that's what the song is. And they're chased by the police, and hilarity ensues. All right. Well, thanks for coming down. Sure thing. Thank you. It occurs to me I should take this time to apologize for dragging you through this unlucky spree when the heat is off i do believe it might be wise to hightail your sweet self away from me if you think i'm going anywhere well think again you owe me boy and now that bill is due she say you'll pay me back but only god knows when so i guess i'll have to tag along with But to run with me, you gotta keep your head down Cause the path you've been let down Is a rocky road with a whole lot of trouble Run with me, but to run with me Know it from the get-go You've been advised to let go of me Tokens of affection from I ain't Romeo And I ain't known to please And you ain't getting flowers Unless you steal some I'm glad of that Cause flowers make me sneeze By the flowers granted By the Lone Star State You're ordered to surrender And meet your sorry fate You shot at a lawman And now you're gonna pay You can hang tomorrow Or you can die today Lessons, shoot Smith and Wessons, hold it low and firm and squeeze on the trigger. Yeah, that's it. Tell me what you hit. I think I shot a rooster. I got trouble now. You stir it up. You can run with me, but to run with me, promise not to cry me. You ain't exactly wild me. Run with me till you're done with me, but there is one condition. For I coalition to survive. What's that? You can run with me, but I get to drive.
Marty Cooper's been at the Colony in the heart of Broadway for over 25 years. He's met and seen just about everything, and he's a self-professed musical theater aholic. We like to bring him in every week for a segment called On the Positive Side. This week, he discusses the Broadway revival of A Chorus Line. I think it was about five years ago, uh, there was a minor show on Broadway called A Class Act. It was the life story of Ed Clavin, a lyricist, and somewhere into the middle of the second act. Actually, the show included some of his trunk songs that he wrote that no one ever heard, and a lot of them were pleasant. It was a pleasant little show, but basically not really fit for Broadway. But somewhere into the second act, his one-time collaborator, Marvin Hamlish, comes upon the scene, uh, and you hear three girls on stage singing at the ballet, and uh, you hear the final three notes of that song, and at least for me, the hairs went up on the back of my neck. It was a thrilling moment. It reminded me of something, and uh, they shoved about two hours and 15 minutes, intermissionless minutes, into a show called The Chorus Line on Broadway right now. It happens often during that course of the evening where you just get chills going up and down your spine. They haven't changed the show a hair. Everything is in place. There are different people, and to some people, they might not consider them as good as some of the originals, but I think they were all fine, especially Charlotte Dumbois, who plays Cassie, who is just looking for a job, and Michael Barisi, who plays Zach, who's some people thought was a little too sweet and not menacing enough. I thought he was great. In fact, I was thrilled with the entire evening. I loved everything from, from the very first minute of the show. And about 10 minutes into the show, the headshots come out over their faces. And you know a chorus line is back home where it belongs and uh, we should embrace it and just keep it there. And from what I understand, they're doing great business at the box office. You can't get a seat for about six or seven months now. I am happy about that. And uh, now I am waiting for the other big revival, Les Mis, of course, which is opening in a couple of weeks. I think we'll be okay. I think Broadway is going to be fine with just these two things being the centerpiece of everything else. You know, I hope everything else is, is as successful as those two. But I am excited about it, and I hope, I hope Chorus Line stays for a long time. If you didn't see it the first time, try to catch it this time. In fact, catch it a few times, because it needs, it needs a couple of visits. And if you're in the right mood, it will be addictive. And you'll want to see it two or three more times. So uh, a lot of people are addicts of this show, and I think I've become one of them. I absolutely loved it. I was welling up most of the night. I was just sitting there looking at some of these things. I, I don't know whether it's, it's a matter of nostalgia or it's a matter of just how good this show is, uh, how original the idea is, but it just moves you incredibly. So uh, go to the Schoenfeld Theater, West 45th Street, and pick up a couple of tickets and enjoy. This has been Marty Cooper, and once again, I'll see you next week on The Positive Side. 
On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, located at 49th and Broadway or online at colonymusic.com. You can say you found it at The Colony. If you're looking for Broadway cast albums, sheet music, or karaoke, Marty and his friendly staff are always there, ready to help you out. Well, we've got those Australian um, virgins, Kelly Road and Verity Hunt Ballard, back with us to talk about the Australian theater scene. We're back with Verity Hunt and Kelly Road. They're, they performed in Virgins. <laughs> and we're back to talk a little bit about the theater scene in Australia. Well, it's, it's wonderful being an Australian artist in New York at the moment and being able to bring a flavor of Australiana over. And we've been welcomed uh, so warmly. By, by the New Yorkers. And we're both living in Melbourne at the moment and working as, as actors in Melbourne, which is, I, I feel personally, the, the place to be in terms of the most um, broadly contrasting work from fringe theatre to opera to jazz um, commercial to, to commercial theatre. It's a wonderful place. And in October, it's about to la- launch into the international festival in Melbourne, which is always so so much fun. We have the Spiegel tent, which I think is here in New York as well, and it's wonderful. But as Kelly said, you, you guys have a million shows on one street, more than we have in the whole country. And that's hard sometimes, um, as the government tends to pump a lot of money into sports. And it's hard as an artist to keep churning out that energy when the financial sp- support and just general support isn't really there. Mm. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah know. we just don't have as many opportunities as you do here. Our, um, we don't. I mean, it comes down to so many things. Our population, you know, and the cult, our culture, Australian culture, theatre isn't integrated into our culture as much as it is in, you know, the West End or Broadway. Um, and we're so much younger as a country, so we have a lot of time to to make up there. Um, and it is really difficult because of all those factors um, to, I guess, survive as an actor. But it is all over the world. Having said that, you know, I'm sure <laughs> no actor has ever. Said, oh God, it's so easy. You know, I'm sure nobody can say that. So um, the fact that we're here and working on something new is really exciting for us. Um, and we've both been really successful. We've both worked in lots of different facets um, for the last few years since graduating from where we trained. Um, so yeah, but it is much more difficult because of the limited opportunities in Australia, um, and that makes it hard. Now, what do you think it is that, for some reason, it seems that Per capita, Australia has an insane amount of actors that are successful in America. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do, do you, what do you think it is that you know gives Australia that kind of edge, and and why us Americans actually like you guys? Well, I think <laughs> just what Kelly was talking about—the fact that it is quite difficult, and you have to be incredibly hardy and very passionate and uh, completely about what you're about—and as Kelly said, all over the world you deal with knockbacks all the time as an artist, but especially in Australia because the competition is so tight, I think if, if you are lucky, lucky enough as an Australian to come to, to the States, we're bloody hardworking. Absolutely. We're really hardworking and we will work ourselves... Our work ethic is very good generally in Australia, not just as artists, as anything. The Australian work ethic is strong. So I think that probably helps and we're pretty down to earth, you know. We don't really... Um, we're not. We we're not a pretentious. We're not breed wanky, you know. We, we don't. If somebody's pulling our leg, then then 
will say so or, you know, we're about the work and about... We don't really take ourselves too seriously. No. I mean, this is a generalisation, but I think as a nation that's sort of, you know, one of our characteristics. We have a lot of heart. We are very down-to-earth, very hard-working and uh, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We're the first ones to take it, you know, take the mickey out of ourselves. Um, but because it is so hard in our country, you, we just know you, you have to work so twice as hard because the opportunities aren't there. And because the opportunities aren't there... We're starved, so should an audition come up? We are so ready and raring mm. because we don't have three or five a week. You know, we have sort of one every month and, and we've been working for a whole month on this audition. So by the time we get in there, we're just just buzzing. So yeah. And keeping it all in perspective as well in, in times that are, you know, on a world scale so challenging, we're dealing, you know, in 2006, we're dealing with really... <laughs> full-on world issues, keeping everything in perspective too. I remember a beautiful, old, wonderful uh, Australian actress said to me one day, we were having a bit of a deep and meaningful about the industry and things, and she said, darling, bottom line, it's just (laughs) dress-ups. And I thought, wow, you know, whenever things get too, too, too heady... I think of that and I go, right, of course, I'm, I'm passionate about what I do, but it is, it's dress-ups and it's storytelling and, yeah, it's wonderful to be doing that in New York. Now, in America, 95% of the time there's a real, you know, line drawn between, you know, television and film actors and theatre actors, mm. whether it's the actors themselves or the industry behind it that makes that distinction. Is there a lot of crossover or is it the same way in the Australian film and theatre scene? Um, there is definitely that distinction and I think it's easier what seems to be uh, happening in Australia more and more is that um, those who are successful on the small screen uh, or in the soaps um, are winning uh, theatre roles over theatre actors because of their celebrity status so they're putting bums on seats and they're bringing it because there's a name there there's a familiarity for the audience um, and so you know they're sort of winning roles so that's that um, never happens on Broadway. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, I noticed. Oh, I noticed a few of the stars, not mentioning names. But so that's um, you know that crossover. I think seems to be more acceptable than the opposite. Um, yeah. Although having said that, I. I can always tell someone who has worked solidly, you know, perhaps is a more of a screen actor or a film actor, and when you see them on stage, if they haven't had the training or the experience, because theatre is a, a full-body experience, you can't go up there and use your face and use the top half of it. You need from your toes to your head. I think you can always tell the difference between someone who really is uh, a stage performer and isn't. But there is that distinction in Australia, and that is it's difficult to make that crossover. So who would you say are the top stage actors in uh, in Australia, in Australia. right now? Ooh, oh, you're going to get in trouble with our friends back home. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm biased. I'm just going to say the people that I've worked with who are amazing. Oh, well, someone that, that has been an inspiration for me, um, I met her way, way back when she, she wasn't big in the States, but Kate Blanchett is, I think, the epitome of a crossover. I think she is incredible on stage film, TV, I think she she's incredible. But there aren't many, many people who have um, have done that to, to her degree and, and reached the world um, status that she has. Mm. But, uh, oh, there's, lo- there's wonderful, wonderful actors in Was Australia. Was Tony Collette stage trained there? Uh, 
Yeah, you know? she, uh, she, she, she went, did Wild Party here in New York on yeah, Broadway, and I was yeah. really stunned, and she did a great job. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Kelly and I both studied at WAPA, which is the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, which is where Hugh Jackman trained, um, Francis O'Connor trained. And yeah, Tony went to NIDA for a little while, um, but I don't think she, she finished there, and she's definitely, yeah, she, she's up there too. Any up-and-coming playwrights, directors? Obviously, the, the, the one you're working with is the first guy to have a... Musical produced off-Broadway from Australia. Yeah, I think these guys, um, they seem to be embraced by New York. This is their second piece. I mean, they were invited into this festival, having worked with Chris Stewart before, who is the head of the festival at the moment. Um, But, yeah, Dean Bryant and Matthew Frank are a duo that I think are really going to um, succeed probably here even more Mm. than Australia. It's kind of sad that um, how hard they have to work to, um, I mean, and are still working to receive recognition. But having said that, um, I believe they have been commissioned to write, um, you know, anything from um, small children's theatre to um, commercial pieces um, over the next 12 months. So it seems now that they're starting to really get embraced by Australia, which is very exciting because these guys are the next generation. Mm, Dean at the moment is working on Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical, which is going to be huge in Australia and I'm, and I'm sure they're hoping to take it worldwide. It's, it's going to be a very... It's a $7 million project um, and Dean is associate director on that. So it's very exciting. Any other up-and-coming writers that you can think of from... Uh, John O'Gavin is an Australian um, young playwright who uh, is writing with Melbourne Theatre Company and doing lots of things in Sydney. He's um, very talented. Watch out for him. Extraordinarily, in every way, as an actor. I think he's just finished at the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, he's Performing with Caroline O'Connor. Yeah, there's... uh, the Aussies, we we're good. The Aussies, we're bringing, we're bringing out the, we're bringing out the tosh. We're not biased, but we're good. <laughs> we're just a long way away. <laughs> well, thanks so much for spending a little extra time to discuss the theatre scene in Australia. I'm sure it's something many of our listeners haven't experienced yet. So, and you recently completed Virgins in New York, and I wish the best of luck with that actually coming to New York to, for a permanent home. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Michael. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Well, in the spirit of that interview, we've got a song from the musical theater team Dean Bryant and Matthew Frank, who wrote Virgins, but they also wrote Prodigal, which was the first musical theater production by an Australian team to ever hit American shores in New York City. So here is Love Them and Leave Them Alone from the American cast recording of Prodigal. The cheek! I'd have wallop him from here to Sunday. I'm going outside and bringing him back. Don't you dare, Celia. Are you ordering me, Harry? I am telling you that if that person comes back into my house... That person is that who he's become. Not so long ago, he was your boy. That person, no, not even a name. Just keep him with blame. Harry tried to destroy... You heard what he said, Celia. He has shown me no respect. Have you shown him any? Look at him! If you mean he's made a mistake... That's pretty clear, but I'm sure he knows that more than you if you mean he is a mistake. Get out of here. I don't want to hear words so untrue. I'll not hear judgment till it's due. Look around you, Harry. See the table, the chair. Don't forget, Harry. He learned from us there. Can't forget now, Harry. Acting out of despair. That everything we taught, we taught with care. Child is not what you make it, he's what he makes of himself. You guide them on their own way, you pick their clothes, check their health, you watch them walk out the doorway. 
constantly watch the fan And though they hardly call you You love them and leave them alone And alone he went on his way He had to fly Would you have had me clip his wings And he found what he had to find He had to try Your son had need of other things Than what we thought of offering Don't condemn him, Harry To himself he was true Aren't you happy, Harry? He got that from you Don't reject him, Harry What else could he do? We always said to turn to us And so that's what he knew Yes, our child is not what we brought up brought out bits of himself he needs us as he never did if he's to keep up his health he walked back in through that doorway yes rarely did he phone but now he's made the contact will you love him or leave him alone god knows he chose a path i never dreamed he might but that's his struggle that's his choice he didn't Because he thought it was his right He chose to finally have a voice No, our child is not what we asked for He didn't ask this himself He's living out of pain and fear Instead of living from health I won't push him out that doorway And mother him on the phone He's my baby now and always Well, we told you at the beginning of the show that we'd let you know how to stump the staff for a $20 gift certificate to the Drama Bookshop. This week, D.A.A. Bosch posted the winning question, which was, who was originally supposed to be the lyricist for The Phantom of the Opera, and what was the only song he or she wrote for the project? Well, Jessica from the Drama Bookshop answers, I think the answer is Mike Bat. His name is still attached to The Phantom of the Opera, the song, not the musical itself. So we don't think they were stumped, but by all means, D-A-A-B-O-S-H, let us know if that was the wrong answer on the forums. But in either case, the hardest question, the last question answered, still wins the $20 gift certificate from the Drama Bookshop every week. You don't have to live in New York. They ship internationally. So if you're looking to submit your questions, get them in. We have a week lead prep getting them in, and the first 10 questions submitted are eligible. Just go to broadwaybullet.com and follow the links to enter Stump the Staff, post your questions, and then I move them into the thread for next week's show while we anxiously watch if the Drama Bookshop answers them. Anybody who indeed stumps the staff wins a $20 gift certificate to the Drama Bookshop. That's as many questions as stump them. But no matter what, even if they aren't stumped, the hardest question as agreed on by the Drama Bookshop wins a $20 gift certificate.